Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Linebarger, read by Crystal J. Silas. Chapter 15a, Strategic International Information Operations, Part 1. From 1776 to 1945, the U.S. system of government managed to survive in a world comprising of many types of government without setting up its own propaganda and agitational forces. Propaganda, through most of the 20th century, was pretty clearly limited by the U.S. conception of propaganda as a weapon auxiliary to war. Psychological warfare became proper, in conventional American terms, only when there was a war to be won. With the coming of peace in 1945, there was considerable uncertainty as to whether the United States should have a propaganda establishment at all. The story of U.S. peacetime propaganda since the end of World War II is a very complicated one. Quantity, direction, purpose, and quality have shifted with the various turns of the international situation. The subject has become much more difficult to write about since the time the first edition of this book was written in 1946. In the first place, governmental secrecy has been very sharply restored. Even very routine State Department operations for putting across the U.S. point of view have been shrouded in masses of classified documents. For reasons not always evident to the outside observer, the assumption has become prevalent that the normal operations of the United States government should be kept confidential, secret, or even top secret. Often, it would seem that the attempt to maintain secrecy in non-sensitive functions is not worth the security effort at all, or, contrarywise, may even reassure the antagonists of the United States by not letting them realize how serious and how unfriendly our plans or policies with respect to them may be. This is not the time or place to discuss the problem of secrecy as a protection against domestic criticism, which secrecy, of course, has often become to the detriment of both the government and the citizens of the United States. In the second place, not only have information activities become more hush-hush, they have also become more complicated. It is difficult to do justice to an intricate moving panorama of activities, some of which may not be mentioned or described under existing law. Demobilization and Remobilization The ending of the OWI and the installation of the International Information Service, mentioned above on page 184, in turn changed into the information activities of the Department of State. These were headed from 1945 to 1953 by an Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. In 1953, a director of the United States Information Agency not under the Department of State, but mysteriously attached to the National Security Council, was inaugurated. The overseas operating component of the USIA remained the United States Information Service, USIS, transferred from State Department control. In other words, there were eight years in which the Department of State had primary responsibility for the conduct of peacetime propaganda of the United States. This was the first and only time that the United States government had, in a period of relative peace, undertaken a sustained propaganda effort. The effort had ups and downs because neither the citizenry nor the officials knew whether the country was in a condition of peace or at war, and, if at war, at war with whom. To some, the enemy was communism the ideology. To others, communism the movement. To still others, the USSR. To others, the Korean communist, but not the Chinese communists. 
to others, the Chinese communists in Korea, but not the Chinese communists in China, and so on ad infinitum. The general history of these eight years was, by and large, a first phase in which the United States demobilized or destroyed propaganda facilities, which had been built up with great skill and at great cost during World War II, and a second phase in which those facilities were partially rebuilt and the skills rediscovered. The low point in this development was probably the winter of 1947-48. to 48. For a while, the rumor went around Washington that the Secretary of Defense, Lewis Johnson, would not tolerate the utterance of the words propaganda or psychological warfare, and that the Secretary of the Army, Kenneth C. Royal, refused to have the topic mentioned to him. That may be the exaggeration characteristic of newspapermen, but it epitomized the spirit of that time. While psychological warfare almost disappeared from the Department of Defense and the three services during this low point, the State Department never quite demobilized. For one thing, the State Department had inherited the OWI facilities and the Army facilities in the occupied countries, Austria, Germany, Korea, and Japan. As the heir to substantial information facilities, the State Department kept a certain minimum activity going. Facilities such as American Broadcasting Station in Europe, ABSIE, Radio in American Sector of Berlin, RIAS, the Information Control Commands in the American Sector of Germany, Information and Education, INE, Section of the General Headquarters of the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, SCAP, in Japan, these, though sometimes renamed, represented going propaganda concerns which required a Washington command post. Meanwhile, it became standing operating procedure in the U.S. diplomatic establishment to attach some kind of an informational facility to every diplomatic establishment and to most of the major consulates. Since there were always advocates of complete propaganda dismantlement, as well as enthusiasts for the maintenance of information programs, the issue of remaining in the propaganda business or getting out was always more or less in doubt. The economy and the demobilization phases of 1947 and 1948 were stimulated by evidence of Soviet bad faith in Europe during 1949 and brought into sharp focus by the outbreak of the Korean semi-war in 1950. It is not possible to do justice to all these different systems in a single phrase. Even as late as the present, it is sometimes difficult to determine why the U.S. need have an information program operating in such entirely friendly countries as Cuba, Haiti, Ireland, or Australia. There is some point to the argument set forth by the ultra-conservatives that what was good enough for Theodore Roosevelt ought to be good enough today. That, in other words, the United States should be known for what it is and not by what a few hired promoters can say about it. As in so many other fields of activities, however, the past is irrecoverable. The United States can no more return to the pre-atomic age in propaganda matters than it can in defense matters. The world we have built is with us, and the only alternative to survival seems death. With respect to the specific field of propaganda, this leads to occasional curious political alliances. Sometimes the conservatives in U.S. politics are so conservative they want no propaganda at all. At other times, these same conservatives are so anti-communist that they want more propaganda. On occasions, the left within the USA has viewed U.S. propaganda with alarm, and at other times has demanded that there be more of it, and that more of the content be left. Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs 
the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, has been the principal officer of government responsible for the conduct of the U.S. propaganda during 1945 to 1953. His successor, the Director of the United States Information Agency, faces very closely related problems. Fortunately, one of these Assistant Secretaries of State has written an excellent book relating his experiences and the problems of his office in detail. Edward W. Barrett, in his Truth is Our Weapon, New York, 1953, describes his own experiences with two years in that position. The Assistant Secretary had the help of an interdepartmental committee which, under various labels and various degrees of secrecy, attempted to coordinate the foreign informational activities of the various departments of the United States government to common goals. Later, as will be described, the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs was supplemented by a psychological strategy board outside of the Department of State, and, still later, by a White House assistant in charge of informational policies at the highest level. What can be said of this first U.S. peacetime performance in the propaganda field? The Assistant Secretaries themselves have been men of varied capacities and interests. Mr. Barrett was an OWI veteran and a journalist of high standing. George Allen was a tough-minded career diplomat. Helen Sargent was a distinguished government official. William Benton was the founder of the most successful canned music system for restaurants and the most vigorous promoter which the Encyclopedia Britannica ever had. Later, he became a senator. Men such as these can scarcely be called tight-lipped fanatics emerging from the hidden recesses of U.S. Politburo. They and their colleagues did a surprisingly good job. American travelers overseas were often amazed to find that the U.S. propaganda effort was far more polished and purposeful than an observer within the United States could expect it to be. The activities of the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs consisted of supervising the domestic origination of broadcasts directed to the Soviet Union, the satellite countries, neutrals, and France. The radio system was generally known as the Voice of America. To this degree, he had charge of a propaganda system operated within the United States by Americans, but speaking to foreigners, sometimes by transmitters located within the USA, and more often with relay transmitters which picked up programs originating in the continental United States and rebroadcast overseas. One echelon removed, there were installations attached to the diplomatic and consular establishments of the United States, which were usually known as USIS, although in some particular cases, quasi-private facilities were sponsored instead. In each foreign country, there was at the embassy or legation level a public affairs officer, PAO, who was the information specialist for the diplomatic mission and, in theory at least, in charge of all U.S. propaganda or informational activities, whichever one preferred to call them, in the country to which he was accredited. A complex hierarchy of officials routed, relayed, screened, and coordinated programs from headquarters to the PAOs in the field, and proposals or requests from the PAOs back to headquarters. Other U.S. Facilities A complicated element in the State Department's conduct of propaganda was the fact that at no time did the State Department enjoy even a monopoly of the governmental mass communications of the United States abroad. It goes without saying that at no time did the State Department achieve or seek control of private U.S. mass communications such as the international editions of Time and Newsweek, the circulation of American books and magazines on a commercial basis, commercial American-owned publications abroad, or the like. 
At the very least level of competition, the State Department had the Armed Forces Radio Service, AFRS, broadcasting to most of the countries in which the State Department was active, often broadcasting in quite a different tone of voice and with very different content. In many instances, foreigners who understood English preferred to listen to the lively radio programs transmitted for the edification of U.S. service personnel stationed abroad, rather than to listen to the canned programs made up for the benefit of themselves as a foreign target. The author has seen Chinese shopkeepers in Singapore listen very seriously to a sergeant giving the news of the day at diction speed from an armed services transmitter somewhere in the Pacific Ocean area. In 1948, there was virtually no coordination between the armed services and the Department of State. As time went on, the two sets of U.S. broadcasts took a certain amount of note of each other. Coordination was not as easy as it might seem on paper. After all, what is one to do? Is it valid to propagandize our innocently cherubic service personnel abroad, whom so many domestic purity leagues and local pressure groups are anxious to defend? After all, these service people possess fearful weapons. Each is a congressman to whom he might write. But if service personnel in a foreign country are to be given non-propaganda materials, how can the same area be given propaganda materials for the benefit of the indigenous personnel? The propaganda from the United States government must not be too much at variance with the non-propaganda of the United States government. If the two extremes of communication were too far apart, the United States government might look like an ass. That would be most unhappy. Over and above the contradictions and difficulties involved in the operation of at least two governmental systems and many private systems of U.S. news communication and dissemination systems in foreign areas, there is the further problem of the additional U.S. facilities. Sources such as the Washington Post, Joseph Alsop, James Reston, and other well-informed Washington journalists often hinted gloomily and darkly that U.S. cloak-and-dagger operations are still going on. Dorothy Thompson was often troubled by what she regarded as the feckless successors of the wartime OSS. Many times, Americans resident in local areas concerned seemed never to have heard of the hush-hush operations in their own overseas homes, operations which were denounced with purple prose in Washington. We can say that covert operations, when they have really been uncovered, as in the case of the Times story about overzealous U.S. support of a German nationalist resistance group, turn out to be much more pale than the lurid columnist or inside stories from Washington would lead one to believe. More serious have been the duplication and triplication and occasional quadruplication of official informational activities. The Overseas Economic and Military Aid Program, known successively as Economic Cooperation Administration, ECA, Mutual Security Administration, MSA, and Foreign Operations Administration, FOA, has not only supplemented the existing leaflet, broadcast, and other informational activities of the State Department and the Arms Forces with a third set of information programs, it has itself had a fourth rival in the Point 4 Administration, the Technical Cooperation Administration, TCA, which was both a part of state and not a part of state, depending upon the particular situation overseas. Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia over and above the government's operations in this field, there have been the quasi-private undertakings of the Committee for a Free Europe and the Committee for a Free Asia. These have been privately sponsored and privately financed by altruistic organizations dedicated to broadcasting those things which the State Department finds it impolitic to put on the air. 
The degree of governmental contribution or participation is not known, although it is often touched upon in the U.S. press. That the organizations are to a definite extent private is evident in their ability to broadcast local and controversial news to particular Iron Curtain countries and by the fund drives which they have waged with little contribution boxes inside the USA. The advantage of the RFE and RFA type of operations is that, by giving voice to independent, non-governmental resistance to communism, it has often been possible to go far beyond the limits which intergovernmental protocol would impose on a U.S. official broadcast. That is, the United States can scarcely describe a deputy minister in the Romanian government as a scoundrel, thief, pervert, or renegade. Romanian exiles allowed access to Radio Free Europe stations need to have no such limitations. On the other hand, there is a difficulty that Radio Free Europe because of its U.S.-based finance and management, might lend an unnecessary U.S. sponsorship to genuinely independent anti-communist undertakings. Here again, as in the case of the reconciliation of the State Department and defense broadcasts, it is impossible to draw a doctrinal rule which would prescribe on one hand that all propaganda broadcasts should be unofficial, or that they should all be official. One cannot even say that they should all be coordinated. The Psychological Strategy Board Coordination was nevertheless attempted, at least for the governmental side. In 1951, President Truman created the Psychological Strategy Board, bringing the versatile and judicious Gordon Gray back to Washington for the purpose. The prescribed role of the board was to coordinate, plan, and phase all United States information policies so as to achieve maximum effect from the governmental effort. Not once did the board dare reach out for a penny's worth of jurisdiction over private U.S. facilities. The Psychological Strategy Board was only originally under the chairmanship of the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, then General Walter Beadle Smith, with the members of the board consisting of the Undersecretary of State, the Undersecretary of Defense, and the Deputy Director of what was at the time known as ECA, later MSA. The board had a series of able staff directors and small staffs detailed from other government departments on a permanent basis to serve as a working secretariat. The precise operations of the board were cloaked in extraordinary secrecy. It cannot be said that the U.S. propaganda worsened in the two years following the establishment of the board, neither can it be said that U.S. Psy war operations scored any coups so striking as to deserve a position in the annals of international affairs. End of section 26, chapter 15a, read by Crystal J. Silas, Fort Myers, May 26, 2021.